Hey friends, welcome to Working Title, a podcast where two writer friends stumble through books we love, looking for writing secrets and anything else they might contain. Uh, like our podcast, we are both works in progress. Uh, I am Dana, and today I'm procrastinating on writing and blaming my to-do list for it. A time-honored tradition. Um, I'm Leah, and today I'm daydreaming and writing not a single bit of it down. Ugh, <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> so often. I'm on a walk and I'm like, this would be a great story. And I get back from the walk and I remember nothing. Yep. Always, always a classic. Mm -hmm. So for our first episode, we're starting with a flashback where we reread a book that was a sort of touchstone in our own journeys to becoming writers and try to figure out what about that book made us decide, yeah, books are amazing. I want to grow up and torture myself to try and make these. So this week we are discussing Stardust by Neil Gaiman, which was your pick, Leah. Do you want to kick us off by telling the people what that book's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So Stardust is a fairy tale inspired adventure with three different intersecting plot lines. The story starts in Wall, a town that borders Fairy, and begins when a boy named Tristan Thorne promises to go beyond Wall and bring back a falling star to the girl he is pursuing in exchange for a kiss. Imagine his shock when he finds out that the star is a woman and not a hunk of rock. And on top of that, Tristan isn't the only one seeking the star. A witch and three princes also have their own reasons for looking at for her. And not even Tristan is what he seems. Da, da, da. I really sold that book, I feel. <laughs> I love it. I love it a lot. To be fair to Tristan, I am also surprised when rocks turn out to be ladies. Like, that is sort of an alarming moment yes. for someone. He really he really does kind of take it on the chin, as they say. He's like, all right, you're a woman. <laughs> Fine. Like, anyway, nothing about my plan has really changed. Um, let's go. <laughs> so, <not> good. <laughs> yeah. so good. So good. So to start out... Uh, this this was your pick. This was a book that you were like, this is foundational in some way. Do you want like why did you why did you pick this book or this author? Uh, when did you read it first? Because this was a reread for both of us actually. But so when when did you read it first? Yeah. So I I read this book such a long time ago, and I actually read it after watching the movie as a child. And I've seen the movie numerous times since then. I, I love the whimsy. I love um, stories that are kind of have like this fairy tale element, um, which is something that I think Gaiman does extremely well. And I've read all of his other books at this point. I really love Neil Gaiman. Uh, <laughs> um and I, I think it's interesting sometimes to go back in, into the kind of the earlier parts of a um, an author's works and see how their work has changed, what has stayed the same. You know, what I, as a writer myself um, and as a struggling newbie writer, I'm really interested in seeing and, and reminding myself that authors can grow and published authors that you love, like you'll see elements of the things that you love in many of their stories executed in different ways. And also that you can go back and explore the same idea in different ways multiple times. So that's really kind of what I was looking for when I picked this book. Yeah, that is a very comforting thought. I feel like that's a very, that's a thing that I struggle with a lot is like, okay, is it boring that I keep coming back to the same things? Or is it a sign that my voice is developing? You know, like right. which one? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And also like I I will, you know, I think every writer or many writers, I can't speak for every writer. How dare I? Um, but <laughs> I think when I speak with writers, a lot of them also have like a notebook full of ideas or like, you know, something like that, a document or right. even in their head. 
And like any idea, when you first think about it, even though it's not very well developed, it feels that way. And then you like sit down to really think and you're like, oh, wait a second. And I find over and over again, I sit down and examine my ideas and I'm just like, oh, it's another portal story. Wow. What is <laughs> you know, like, oh, you're doing this again. Oh, it's about like grief again. Okay, Leah. Like, you know, so there's so many moments where I'm just like, or even writing my current book and seeing some of the similarities for like with another book that I have kind of on the docket that's exploring very similar themes. And I'm just like, are these two similar? And the answer is often actually no. So many <laughs> authors basically write like in a lot of ways, write um, very similar things or even the same thing along the same themes over and over again in different worlds. So like it, it's, yeah, it's just such a great reminder that um, you can just write whatever you love, even if it's the same thing over and over again with different dressing. It's still different. Yeah, totally. No, you're just laying the early foundations for future future intertextual analysis of your work. Really. Yes, yes. You're like, you know what? I'm going to help all of those future grad students who have to write their thesis on me and just really Absolutely. make the connections clear off the bat. <laughs> Um, I know what it's like to write a research paper. I don't want them to suffer. It's not about me being obsessed with certain things. It's about me helping you write your paper. Absolutely. <laughs> help me help you. So before you knew how to write a research paper, uh, when you first read this book, what did you like? Like what spoke to you there? I know you mentioned like the kind of fairy tale aspect. I have to say also, uh, super interesting to me that you also... Uh, read this book after seeing the movie because so did I which was a very much an aberration in like bookish kid yeah. childhood where you're like the book's always better than the movie I won't see the movie until I've read the book but I also I watched the movie I didn't realize it was a book at first right same because it was written like it was written around the time that I was born um, yeah. <laughs> so like that was not you know yeah I think absolutely so, like, for me, first and foremost, I've always loved the kind of soft magic stories. Mm. I like it when fantasy captures the wonder of the everyday. Like, I, I've, you know, I've always loved the idea that you could just go around the corner and find something magical there. And I also just think it makes living in this world so much more fun when you read a book that infuses fantasy into the mundane like I like the intimate stories I like the soft smaller stories I think that's also yeah. part of why I love folktales so much because it's like the world that as you perceive it is not what you think like it's not what it seems and for me like as someone who is like a kind of an anxious person I'm um, being reminded that I can like you know just suddenly change my perception even as a writer and in that find something magical find a new idea find it just it makes me a much more curious person, which I really, really love. Like there's so many ideas that I really like, like this idea that you can like take the color of someone's hair as payment, that when dreams are too <laughs> loud, they can spill out into other people's dreams, <laughs> promises that bind you in a very little way, maps that move around are, and are unreliable, like little unexplained things that are just kind of like layered over the top of something that we see in our everyday life is just it's chef's kiss in case you couldn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is really satisfying. I think I, I'm a fan of both structures, but I think sometimes it's refreshing these days. We spend a lot of time talking about like magic systems. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of both. Like when, when people come up with really cool magic systems that like have all these rules and limitations so that I know mm -hmm. what, what can be done with them. Like that's really interesting. That's really cool. That can be really fun as, as a plot point and, and a thing to develop. But it's also kind of cool sometimes to go back to that, like, the classic fairy magic of, mm -hmm. like, why does it happen? Because <laughs> yeah. the fairy said so. That's how it works. Yeah. It just is. Like, it just is. Um, and that's sometimes that's enough for me. Yeah. I think also reading this book, I was thinking again about how we bring, like, our own history to the books that we read. Uh, because as a kid, I would go out in the middle of the night and sit on our old rickety swing set and swing and look at the stars. And when I did that, it seemed to me that the stars were dancing and that they were dancing with me. And so I, as a child, I was like, yes, stars are people. Like in my head, that's what it was. <laughs> 
And so imagine my joy and delight when I find a book that's like, you know what? You're right. Stars are people. I was like, yes, finally a star is a character. Like this is all I wanted. Um, So I think sometimes like the books that we really love, it's like in that moment, they give us something um, that really resonates with our internal world. Um, And that's what it, that's what it did. A star is a person. Like I didn't want to be a princess. I wanted to be a star. Like, literally, not like a pop star. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. And thank you also for this precious image of baby (laughs) Leah, which I will treasure forever. Yes. (laughs) I was always a daydreamer, for good or ill. I love it. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to talk more about, too, you were talking about kind of this, like, intimate scope for the fantasy as far as, like, the way the magic works. Um, but I feel like that was also, that was also something that stuck out to me a lot that I was thinking about kind of after I finished the reread and I was, I was thinking and also thinking about the movie version and the ways that they were different. And a thing that was really interesting to me about the book is that at no point during the story is the world in danger. The world is always totally fine. Mm -hmm. Like Tristan may or may not get the girl, the star may or may not ever get home. Uh, these witches may or may not get their, you know, special magic lifeblood energy, <laughs> whatever, Soylent Green from the star <laughs> that they want. Uh, who knows who's going to be in charge of Stormhold. But there's never the like, and if this doesn't happen, then the world of fairy is over. Mm-hmm. Or if this, if, if they don't succeed... Uh, you know, the, the the town of Wall is destroyed. Like, it was always very... The stakes were people. The stakes were just people and their feelings. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as someone who writes a lot of fantasy, it was, again, like, really refreshing to read that because I feel a lot of... Maybe it's also just self-imposed pressure that, like, oh, to make stakes, you've got to put a whole kingdom at risk. You've got to put a whole uh, alternate dimension at risk as opposed to... No, you... Sometimes you can just put... Boy, like Tristan and Evane would be really sad if something bad happened to them, right? Like right. if the witch comes and steals her heart, that would suck for them, but like the world would keep going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like a good a good reminder that sometimes the most meaningful stakes are very personal. Um, they're not these grand stories. And it kind of actually um I was thinking about CW shows the other day. Um blessed. <laughs> As one does. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why sometimes they can be so cheesy and bad is that they, they'll often treat the most important stakes these like as these big kind of world-rending things. Like, yes, like the, the romantic entanglements are like almost like these side soap opera dramas, but every season has to have like this big bad character. And they don't really have a... I mean, they don't really have an ending in mind, which is already sometimes an issue. But also, like, every episode, they feel like they have to up the ante with the big bad. Um, Instead of, like, you could just complicate these smaller personal stakes. It's not that the enemy has gotten any bigger or badder or that the entire world is in danger. It's that maybe something in between these characters is making it harder for them to work together. Maybe there's something else that they're dealing with. and, like, it can be fun to have, like, the big bag and these big, big stakes, you know, like, Marvel film-esque type things. But I've always really appreciated when the stakes are so much smaller and more personal. Like, I really like personal stakes. Um, so that, for me, is, like, a big plus. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, too, a funny thing that happens a lot of times when you when you only accept the stakes have to be the city will be destroyed, the world will be destroyed... You run into some really weird stuff that you see sometimes in, like, the Marvel movies where, like, okay, when we're not dealing with the Avengers, we want something that only, like, little Spider-Man's going to deal with. Mm. But, like, how many times, like, wouldn't the other guys show up if the world was in danger? I feel like that, I first had that realization actually watching, um... Angel, the spinoff season from Buffy. Yeah. Because, like, Angel's down in L.A., saving the world from like three different apocalypses and like sees Buffy like randomly halfway through one season and like she's back up in Sunnydale saving the world from three different apocalypses but like she would have popped down 
if the world was in danger. Like, it doesn't make sense. Right. Yes. And 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 just, yeah, and that's, I think, less important than what you're pointing out. But it is one of those moments where you're like, okay, if everything's an apocalypse, more people would help out. Mm-hmm. Maybe everything doesn't need to be an apocalypse. Maybe we can address the fact that, like, stakes can be really, really huge when they're personal, mm-hmm. when they're based in people and relationships. And maybe that is also okay because for most of the people who are reading stuff or watching stuff, those are the stakes that we know. Yeah. I haven't actually ever had to save the world from an apocalypse, but I have had to try and like deal with really complicated emotional shit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, and almost always like my goals, like, you know, what else can be interesting about a villain? I feel like with some of these high stakes, high fantasy stories, it's like, and the villain was evil bent on taking over the world. Like it's almost become like a kind of joke at this point um, that that's what the big bad wants to take over the world. And they're going to give an evil monologue. Um, In some ways it's better to just have like, really in this book, you have these three characters that are, or these three sets of characters that are working at cross purposes with each other. And that's, that's where the conflict comes in. Um, and I think that can be like, uh, it's also something that it's hard to write. It's much easier to be like, yes, because he's evil. And that's why he's doing it. <laughs> duh. Like it's much harder to write a story with um, different characters that are just operating differently um, and with different goals in mind. In my opinion, um, other people who are most more skilled might be like, what are you talking about, Leah? But um, get out of this <laughs> podcast. You're too good for us. Um, or not. Join this podcast and teach us. That's probably teach better. Teach us things. Yes. Help us become better. Yeah. I think I've always almost preferred some of these smaller stakes. Or um, there are some higher stakes books that I've read where it is world ending, but again, you're you're really viewing this in a very personal way through one or two characters' perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those stakes aren't mutually exclusive. You can save the world and, you know, try to mend things with your ex at the same time, and that can be really exciting. Right. Um, yeah. Or you can be, you yourself can be very involved in the, the world ending thing, but and it's but it's only because you're trying to save your own life you know you're not um some because I think also sometimes one of the risks of the um these kind of big stakes books is you then have characters that like um inexplicably are the you know they are the saviors of the movement you know they are and I understand (laughs) that every and every book you're like following the most important character because Uh you know why wouldn't you um necessarily although like some books like to turn that on its head and that can also be really interesting but um you know it it just it makes a revolution into the success of one person often um so it like I think that's also that's one of the challenges of making it so much bigger is then you kind of risk turning your main character into this like almost flat hero or this super powered individual and kind of ignoring uh, what I personally think are some of the very interesting complexities of things like revolution or uh, world-changing events or whatever. Totally. And you also end up telling some pretty inaccurate stories about how movements and change work. Yep. When you start to say, oh, look, all we need is this one character to show us the way. Mm-hmm. And like that that is everywhere through all of the media. Yeah. But like, hey, y'all, like, you just have to look at some history or some current stuff, and that's not how change happens <laughs> at no. all. Although even in history, the way we tell history tends to be very like individual oh, yeah. hero, usually genius man. And that was very much a choice that we yep. made because we were like, no, what if people don't believe or don't understand that the men are the geniuses? What are you talking about? Other people contributed. No, only this. No contributions, only great geniuses for whom everything must be sacrificed. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like we really got a little bit, um, like, I think it's relevant because I think it's a good reminder of how, like, our own world could influence our fantasy and vice versa, um, which I think is maybe... I don't know, maybe for me as a as a kind of beginner and also because I think it's just something I'm attracted to is also 
I think a good reason to try to sometimes write some intimate scope fantasy where you're really just looking at some mm-hmm. of these smaller everyday problems reminding yourself they can be magic too yeah no I I had it was actually so I was thinking about this book that I was thinking again about uh my project where I have multiple times complained to people where I'm like all I want to do is just write scenes where two characters talk to each other about their feelings and I I kept saying that as like as like a dig on myself right it's like oh I don't want to do any of the Mm. other things that make a book a book And then I was thinking about this and I was like, well, maybe instead of giving myself a hard time about that, I could decide to lean into that and be like, yeah, that's what I want to talk about is people's feelings. And maybe I don't need to try and figure out a way that their feelings and the story I want to tell about that also threatens the existence of the kingdom and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's okay. Which was a cool realization, but also was like, okay, maybe time to do a lot more edits that I am currently not doing. <laughs> oh God. The edits, they're never ending. You think you, you think never. you know what the story is about, but do you? Do you really? And as you figure it out, you will only make more work for yourself. Yeah. I wanted to return to that idea though <laughs> a couple a couple loops back in this conversation. <laughs> uh to villains. Cause mm-hmm. I think you were absolutely right. I I don't think I could name a villain in Stardust. Like, if who, if someone was like, who's the villain in this book? Who would you say? Yeah. I feel like for a lot of people, especially if you've seen the film, it's the witches, right? Because the, totally. the witches want to do the worst thing. Like, but yes. the thing is, you also have to remember that, like, none of the people in the, the story really want to do, like, the best thing except for maybe lord primus who is just gonna be like may i have the stone thank you goodbye you like you know <laughs> he's just he just wants a rock this whole time he's like i just want a rock and i don't want to die that's what i want and his rock turns out to actually be a rock and not secretly a lady which <laughs> yes. is handy yes thank god for that um yeah but it's really like and i think sometimes um that can be like the way with some of the folktales, like in folktales, you have creatures doing like what we as humans perceive to be terrible things, like, you know, killing us, for example. But the way it's presented is though it is never like, or maybe it sometimes is, but often is like, isn't like, you know, they're doing this because they're like these evil, evil, terrible creatures. It's just like, yeah, just fairies do that sometimes. Like, it's in their mm-hmm. nature. Sometimes they just m- mislead you. Or like, you know, sometimes they make deals and the deals suck for you. Like, what do you want them to do? They're fairies. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that's really how kind of this book also approaches it. It's like, yeah, they're like these old ancient witches who are basically immortal. And they just want like their power back so they can keep being witches. Like, do they kind of suck for the big character? Yeah. Like, would I want this to happen in real life? No, but they're not, like, they're not, I guess, um, they don't have, like, some big, giant evil plot. It's just, like, they're just, like, doing yeah. what they need in their life. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it changes what the story says a lot, because instead of then, you know, the problem with creating a villain, and I think why it's easier, like you were saying, to create these, like, this person is evil! Why? Because <laughs> evil things! Yes. Is that if you are creating a villain... You have to decide what evil looks like Mm -hmm. and what kind of evil you want to talk about. Because there's a lot of kinds of evils and there's also a lot of things that are bad or complicated or, uh, again, like, yeah, work at cross purposes to the things you want to happen that aren't evil per se. And it's a very hard thing to figure out, like, okay, what, you know, if if you include a villain who is supposed to be evil you are making a statement mm. about what evil is. Yeah. And so I feel like by not having a villain there, one, you're not, you're now no longer using this story to try to paint a picture of evil and therefore also of like good. You're going to have good versus evil. You're going to have to define your terms. Right. <laughs> like that's that's a key prerequisite. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's a story you want to tell. Like sometimes that's a really important thing, I think, for us as people to analyze is what do we define as good? What do we define as evil? But it's not the only story. And I feel like, yeah, like by not having a villain in this, like Gaiman is able to totally like, we're not talking about evil here. 
We're just talking about people and how they work and the ways that they're a mess, mm-hmm. which I feel like also connects to uh, one of the things that I I struggled with this book when I initially read it and once again reading it is that when you don't have a villain that's super evil and then you don't have a protagonist who's maybe super great. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I think, a big question because when we meet Tristan, he's, yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's you know, a, a, a dopey sweet boy who's in love with a girl in his village. Mm-hmm. But then he's like, kiss me. And she says no. And he's like, no, really, kiss me. And she's like, leave me alone. And then eventually he's like, okay, go get that star, dude. Like, just <laughs> get off. He's a garbage teenager. Yeah, yeah. He is absolutely a garbage teenager. That's who he is. Yeah. And then he he goes on this adventure and he's like, oh, Star's a woman. I still better chain her up and bring her against her will back to my Yeesh. the girl I want to be my fiance. Like, dude does not make a great first impression. No, no, he doesn't. I think there's some really interesting differences between the book and the film. Um, yeah. And actually, one of them is around Victoria, the girl he originally loves, right? Because mm-hmm. in the movie. How it's kind of presented is like Tristan Tristan doesn't really belong. He's kind of dreamy. He's kind of dopey. He loves Victoria, but it's so clear that Victoria is just stringing him along, right? Like she's yeah. she's sometimes pretending to like him, but she doesn't really. She just kind of wants stuff from him. And she's presented as very like vain, frivolous, small-minded, right? Like, oh, Tristan, you, like you're dreaming of bigger things. Haha, whatever. Like this man over here is going to the next town to get me a diamond like you know small-minded yeah in the book she's just like a regular girl and at the end what ends up happening is she's like you know I'll marry you because I said I would if you did this thing but you know I really love this other guy and it's Tristan who it has the big moment where he was like oh my god other people are people and they have like yes. eternal worlds <laughs> And so he's like, no, I've grown now. And like, you promised me what my my biggest heart's desire. And I desire that you marry the person you love. So it's really like Tristan figuring this out. We're in the in the movie. It's Tristan kind of learning to trust himself and his differences. And Victoria is in the end still just as vain and terrible. And so in, in a sense, in the film, she's almost kind of one of the villains in a way. She's one of Tristan's enemies. Yeah, absolutely. No, the the way that the movie uh, totally destroyed Victoria's character, I think, like, when I thought about it, I was like, honestly, she's so minor as a character. But in the book, I'm like, I like you. You're, yeah. you're one of my favorites. Uh, you, you make a lot of sense. You told this guy no over and over again. And then you were like, okay, if you get me a star, maybe I'll kiss you or whatever else you want. And then also, because you were joking, and this weird dope was like, she's serious, I'm gonna go get that star, and left, and then you were like, oh, damn, what if this dude goes and gets himself killed because of a joke I made, and you spent however long waiting, not marrying the dude you were literally engaged to, and because you're like, I I can't be that person, who, I, like, I was joking, I didn't mean it, but now I have to mean it, because he took it seriously, and then, yeah, and in the movie, she's just like, classic, pretty, mean girl. Yes. And you're like, okay. Yes. Okay. It's one of the few things that uh, that was definitely, I was like, wait, I like this way better in the book than I remember it in the movie. Yes. Yes. It's it's so much better. And I think it's, it's also, like, really... Um, it's interesting, like the differences that they that they make to the characters, because in some ways I must feel like that's mm-hmm. the most significant difference. Because the other thing, in terms of like likability, um, when I watched the movie, I was set up to be like, okay, and this is going to be kind of an adventure love story, right? Because in the movie, what happens is Tristan at the outset is like, oh dang, you're like a woman. This is not cool. But like, I also made this promise to this girl I love, which is still kind of stupid and dopey. Like that part doesn't change. That is the core of his character. I appreciate that. He's like, you know what? If you come and just like meet her in exchange, I'll take you back home. And she's like, you know what? 
I still hate your guts and I think this is a stupid idea, but like you're my only chance, basically. Which Yeah. Fair enough. Um <laughs> so he's like I was expecting to go into the book like immediately liking Tristan, but and then in the book he's just he's terrible. Like he's so bad. He really is. <laughs> yeah. I think you and I have talked about this for other books sometimes where like how your expectations going into a book can dramatically change how you read it. Mm -hmm. Like if someone's like, this is a love story. And then you're like, no, this is, this is two people who have weird tensions with each other. And you can be frustrated even though like, no, this is a great book with a subtle romantic thread to it. Mm -hmm. But you're like, I was told love story. I was expecting something different. And I feel like that was a big thing for me initially when I read the book and frankly still, because I went into it with like, to me, the movie's a love story. The movie is, here are these, you know, two crazy kids. Yeah. And yeah, they they, they do an enemies to lovers dance because she's like, I don't want to come meet your stupid girlfriend. <laughs> Leave me alone. Right. But they like spend time together and they talk to each other and they're nice to each mm -hmm. other. And Yvain has dialogue that isn't just, please let me go. Mm -hmm. And Tristan says his, he's sorry as opposed to just like telling Lord Primus, which he does in the book. He's like, I want to apologize. But when he sees Yvain, he never actually does yeah. in in the book. So I was ready for like, I was I loved both of the characters in the movie. And it felt like the focus of that was uh, the love story of the two of them coming together, of watching their feelings develop, of, of seeing that whole arc and transition. And there's really like so little of that in the book. Yeah. And that has that kind of... Like, that's how fairy tales work, right? And it's like, and at the end, the king gives the princess to the charming farm boy and they live happily ever after. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess they are in love. Um, and that, and that's fine. And that's how fairy tales work. I always wonder if it would bother me as much if I had read the book first. But because yeah. I watched the movie first, I was like, what? Right. Where's Yvain being adorable? Where's the two of them, like being cute and flirty where's the entire pirate makeover sequence <laughs> i'll never i'll never not yeah be mad about that in the book it's just uh the hairy man is like well here are some new clothes bye like you know um but yeah i was actually thinking about um like a couple of things related to what you were saying um like first from like a writing perspective like, I feel like what that shows us is you can tweak some relatively small things. Like, the difference between Tristan saying, like, hey, I'm going to make a deal with you, Star. You go meet my girlfriend um, mm -hmm. and you can go back home. And him saying, like, too bad, you're going to go meet my girlfriend. It's, yes. it's already, it's such a world of difference. And it's only a line of writing. Um, so like, it's a good reminder that like, if you're looking at your draft and you're like, this isn't what I, like, this isn't doing what I want it to do. You could probably like, in some cases, write a few lines here and there. And that changes people's perspective of who that character is. So like great writing epiphany that I literally had just this moment. So sharing <laughs> that with all of you. Um, yeah. And the other thing kind of related to this love story is, I actually read an interview with Gaiman and Gaiman said that he actually tried to make Stardust like, and I quote, the kind of thing they wrote before Token. So he was very much looking for that fairy tale style. And I think he really does achieve it. But the thing about fairy tales is they tend to be very sparse, especially on like character development. Like you go in knowing what these kind of character archetypes are and you're kind of carried with it. But it doesn't necessarily make for the greatest love story because the other thing that happens yeah. that I find really frustrating is all their bonding where they don't hate each other and Tristan is really growing as a person happens in literally a few sentences. It's like, yep, yes. so they went and fought some goblins and Yvain was really smart and Tristan was really yep. cute and then they discovered that they liked each other. And I was like, how dare you? I want to know what they were doing with the goblins. Like, I want to see the exchange. I want to see the romantic growth. Where is the meaningful eye contact? Yes, right? Like, where, where is, is it? The, where's the dance where she's glowing? Come on. Like, this is what I signed up for. Um, it just doesn't, like, I think it, it lacks some of that romantic tension. And then, of course, at the end, 
there's a line where um, Gaiman writes that like Tristan realized that even he wasn't who he thought he was. And I'm like, how? Like, where's, you don't see a lot of that growth um, in terms of like Tristan really coming into his own. At most, you kind of, again, see that like worlds exist outside of himself, um, which is like something, but it's, again, it's not what we were kind of set up for after watching the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like what you're saying as best as I can sort of remove myself and, and try and look at it objectively, it's like, okay, I think the book delivered on all of the book's promises. Mm -hmm. It just didn't deliver on the movie's promises, which makes sense. <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's interesting. And I don't know, I don't know really how much that is, is like a, a helpful thing to think about for the writing process, but certainly for then like the pitching process, <laughs> I feel like yeah. that's a really good thing to remember is to be like how this how this story is framed is really going to impact, you know, is this is this a horror story mm -hmm. or a gothic story? Is this, you know, an epic story with some romance that happens or is it a love story? Is this a fairy tale or, you know, the new game of thrones or whatever? Right. And and the book can be exactly the same, but if I'm expecting something different, it's going to change my interpretation and the degree to which I feel like it actually did what I thought it was trying to do at the outset. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Um, writing queries is so hard. Describing your book is so hard. I think also especially because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm thinking about how to pitch my book, I'm thinking about how to conform it to other things or to expected things. And maybe your book isn't like that. Um, and so like in a way, the way I'm describing my books to people, I'm actually kind of doing a disservice to what the book actually is. And also to myself, because I'm assuming that like what I'm trying to explore is somehow less valuable than this tried and true narrative. When in reality, like, you know, as both of us are talking, the movie and the book both have strengths and they're different strengths. And they're both, I think, offer valuable lessons and stories. It's just, you know, they're just different. Um, and again, also a great reminder that you can write the same thing because they're basically plot wise the same thing, but they are incredibly different. Like they're very, yes. very different. Um, yeah. I think something else I really enjoyed about the book actually kind of on that difference was we, we spent a bit more time with the princes. Like I really mm -hmm. liked that there's this one section where Lord Primus um, is at like at a Harbor town and he, he goes around and he makes a big deal about being there. And he's like, I he's like, Hey everyone, I'm definitely going to get on this ship over here. Not any <laughs> other ship, just this one. Does everyone hear me on this ship? And then he goes to the ship and he's like, don't disturb me for a week. I'm going to be in my cabin. And it's because he's actually tricking his brother into thinking that he's going to get on the ship and thereby wasting his brother's time when like his brother goes and tries to kill him. And of course, he's not there. And I was like, this is so great. It's great to see Lord Primus have this tricky side that you never see in the film. In the film, he's just like, I'm tired. I'm weary and I am the good one. I am the only good one. And oh, it is such a burden to bear. Like you don't really see him doing very many clever things. No, totally. He's just there to be killed. Right. Yeah. You don't really have a lot of hope for Primus. You feel sad about it, but you don't feel a lot of hope for Primus. Definitely. <laughs> no. Definitely. Um, so I, I guess I'm also kind of curious, like given these expectations, like we've talked a little bit about some of the things that we maybe didn't like as much in the book because of the expectations that we had going into the book. But was there anything else that you found like didn't resonate um, or that you were kind of like, this is an interesting idea, but. But it didn't really land. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is is some of what we've talked about already. Um, I, I mean, I struggled with Tristan, mm. like it's, it's hard, it's hard to like a character who spends most of the book being a jerk mm. to the people around him who also happen to be, you know, mostly a woman and like, there's, there's a lot of dynamics there that I was not wild about and mm. it was like, okay, I see what you're going for here, but 
like I also I also kind of wanted and needed the love story aspect yeah for that to feel good and right and make sense to me Mm -hmm. the idea that like I mean skipping skipping the love story part of it uh in a way that I I agree is very fairy tale vibes was also like okay so you just kidnapped (laughs) this woman never apologized and now you're in love okay (laughs) I don't love that message. I don't love what what we're taking away from that. Right. Yeah, that was something that was something that I remembered struggling with when I first read it and also still kind of struggled with it this time. Mm. I think I was able to appreciate some of the other aspects of it more on a reread. But um yeah, I was a little bit when you suggested this I was like, "Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Stardust. I remember having some complicated feelings about Stardust." This will be a fun conversation. (laughs) I did not remember Stardust. Like, I did not remember Tristan really being like that at all. Like, in my head, I was like, Tristan, like, movie Tristan, book Tristan, same person. And so reading it again, I was like, oh, no, not the same, even remotely. Um, Well, remotely, but. Yeah. Yeah. So is that reading it again? Do you feel like both, both, you know, time uh working its magic but also then you know at a different sort of stage of your writing development do you feel like your feelings about it like how have they changed and shifted yeah yeah I mean the first time I read the book I was um like 13 12 or 13 I guess maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit younger and like um the thing is, at the time, I was still very much like, stars are people. I'm on board. Like, you know, so that was like, and I was also very interested in um, the magical aspects. Like, I loved the whimsy. You know, as a kid, I feel like I could take any book and just totally throw out the characters and be like, the world is real now. You know what I mean? Like, I care. I yes. feel like I cared less about character development then <laughs> yes. um, than I do now. And and so reading it the second time, you know, my, my perspective around that changed. And also it kind of made me think about how how storytelling has changed and how the choices that we make as writers affect how people are reading it. Like Gaiman made a choice to write it very much in the style of these old fairy tales, but like mm-hmm. the expectations of people who are listening to stories, telling stories has changed since that time. Like there's partly yeah. a reason why that, that framework has changed. So like what parts of the story tell or the story tale, what parts of the fairy tale <laughs> did he uh, decide to keep and by fairy telling me as a genre and what parts did he decide to leave out? Why did he make those choices? Like I found, I looked at, I looked at those choices much more critically and even down to like, you know, we have some of these bigger ideas about characters, but down to the smaller ideas, like some of the expositional dialogue, really, I was like, Neil, pal, (laughs) like why, like, why are we doing this? You know, why are we doing this? Like, um, the focus on breasts and maiden heads for women, like when women, like when the two witches meet and the one witch is like, yes, I swear on my sagging breasts and my maiden head. I was like, what? I can't imagine ever doing that. Just being like, yes, you know how I tell the truth because I have these two lumps of something on my chest that are very important to me. So I swear on that. Like it, I was like, huh. And then there was like another, um, moment where I found some of the expositional dialogue really undercut some great opportunities for tension. And again, I was Mm. often comparing it to the movie. Like there's one part where like towards the end of the movie, what happens is Tristan, you know, he cuts off a piece of her hair. He runs to, um, to wall. He gives it to Victoria and discovers, Oh my God, the hair is turned into stardust. And that scene is intercut with the scene of Yvonne walking towards Wall. And as a child, I was like, I'm so stressed. She's going to die. Is he going to, like, get there in time? Like, she doesn't know. Ah. But in the book, it was, like, the uh, the Lady Una, who's, like, revealed to be Tristan's mother, is like, yeah, if you just go over there, like, you're going to be a rock. And the star is like, I'm going to be a rock? And she's like, yeah. And they say it three times. And then, like, Tristan comes back, and Tristan's like, hey – 
and the Yvain's like, hey, did you know if I go over the wall, I would become a rock? Like, that that literally happens. And I was like, why are you telling us this so many times? Like, this could have been a huge revelation for the reader, but instead you just decide to expose it not once, not twice, but, like, three times. Or maybe it's only <laughs> twice. But, like, it, I was just like, oh, I felt so let down by by some of those types of things. Yeah, that I feel like I agree. Like there was a, there was a major opportunity there for like yeah the dramatic irony of like I the audience know, mm-hmm. but the the characters don't, which is a delightful thing that I feel like Gaiman plays with a lot in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the realizing that Evane would effectively die if she crossed into Wall is like there isn't any tension associated with it. When, it, when they first go there, and neither of them know that Yvain would turn into a rock, you, the reader, also don't know, so you're not worried about it. And then Tristan goes across by himself, and Yvain is supposed to wait for him. She is not supposed to cross over. And then she finds out that she would turn into a rock. And by the time Tristan comes back, both of them are like, well, I don't want to go there right now anyway, mm-hmm. so you're not worried that she's going to turn into a rock. Literally the only time is when she contemplate suicide Mm. because she's like oh Tristan's getting married to Victoria I'm going to just walk across the wall now that I know it'll turn me into a rock and you're like whoa what oh I guess you guys are into each other (laughs) okay (laughs) and that's the only real tension you get out of the fact that Yvain would turn into a rock the rest of it it just doesn't really matter yeah absolutely and it's also like I feel like he often uses dramatic irony to build like some sort of like like comedic tension, not really like tension where you're worried for the characters so much. Yes, like it's just kind of funny. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's much more about like it. Yeah, the conversation with with Yvain and Victoria is much more like a who's on first, what's on second. Like <laughs> oh, you just you don't know how to communicate with each other. That's funny. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you might go turn yourself into a rock because you don't get it. That's funny. This is more the vibe. Right, yeah, absolutely. Or like, haha, like Tristan doesn't know he's half fairy even though he has a furry year. Like he doesn't understand that he has these powers on fairy because he doesn't know his heritage. Haha, that's funny. Like that sort of thing yes. is often like the thing. I was, I don't mean to like go back, but I'm thinking again about this whole love story thing and how part of like Tristan's lesson, because in the beginning he talks about like kind of how love makes all men mad. Um, and also there's this part where he's having this exchange with the hairy man and the hairy man's like, I don't know about you, but I'd find someone who just wants you for you. And Tristan's like, yeah, whatever. Um, so again, I feel like it's, and at the end, like the big revelation moments is also Yvain saying like, I would exchange my heart for your heart, nothing else. Like I don't require anything more from you. But it's sort of, again, because you don't see so much development for Tristan, besides him being occasionally like, hmm, maybe I should apologize. Like, I don't think you get the growth out of Tristan that you want that warrants Yvain saying that, that warrants that reward. It just kind of feels like Tristan, it's like, okay, so you learned to, like, actually go out with girls who like you? Like, like it's just it, the whole thing, because there is that line of love that I think he he tried to maybe execute or hint at, but it again, it feels more like the focus is like Tristan's stupidity, but he's still kind of like rewarded for that. I yeah. I do wonder if I hadn't seen this film first, if that would still sit with me a little bit wrong. Yeah. I feel like when I first, the like first ever attempt at writing the current work in progress, uh, I like, I, I the first time that I had someone read it, they turned to me and they were like, "Okay, so your main couple, I get why he likes her. Mm-hmm. She's super cool and interesting and mysterious, and she does all this great stuff. Why does she care about him? Like literally, what does he?" And I was like, "Oh, oh, okay." <laughs> and I think sometimes I think this is often a thing that gets missed. I, I mean, I think it is common in this uh, with this gender breakdown, but I think it's also just common generally that sometimes we write when we have our main protagonist, mm-hmm. we forget that like 
other people need reasons to care about them besides the fact that they're the protagonist yeah. because theoretically the people in the story don't know that meta knowledge. <laughs> right, yes, yes. But there's so often where you're like, you know, yeah, you have, I mean, I guess you see it, you see it in a lot of gender varieties too, right? There's a lot of uh, super cool lady heroines who have like multiple dudes vying for her affection and you're like, but why though? She, okay. Right now, she all, her only dialogue is expositional. She hasn't done or said anything interesting yet. Like, she's sort of just filling the role of protagonist. Mm -hmm. And it felt like that kind of happened with Tristan here. It's like, we were just all supposed to put ourselves in Tristan's shoes and not wonder why we were lovable and just be like, well, of course, once I learn stuff, good things will come to me. And, like, it doesn't, like, other people aren't going to be like, I just I'm not that into you like there that wasn't really a possibility in this it's like there's a pretty girl there if I learn to be less of a jerk clearly we're gonna fall in love mm -hmm. yeah and you don't see him you don't like there isn't a lot of learning to be less of a jerk he's just like kind of okay like at the end you're yes. like I don't know if that's the redemption that is needed here but yeah I think I think also you see this in stories all the time even those without romance lines like my work in progress doesn't have any romance in it at all and um but there are other characters that are helping the main character and it's just like and one of them is like basically a small god and it's like why is this small god <laughs> helping her and i was like that's a good question um <laughs> because plot reasons really because i really like this small god and i want them to exist in the book <laughs> like that's you know it's a I think like I think that's also something like for me I found off in my first drafts are like all of these other characters are organized in such a way that makes this plot happen then the second draft I'm like oh yes but actually they have their own lives and things that need like I think it's also just another reminder of like how you know when you see a book like you know that the author has already like you know written so much about these other characters that just don't make it on the page because you have to so the stuff that still does stay on the page makes them feel like people and not plot devices yeah not just like barbies whose faces you're mashing together <laughs> right exactly exactly um so yeah so i feel i feel like we've covered a bunch of this too just kind of in passing but what do you feel like what do you feel like you've learned from it as a writer, either in initial or in this reread in this conversation um, since, you know, we're, we're doing this so that we can try and figure out what it is about books that makes them books and maybe how we can do that, too. Like, what are the things that you feel like are like the main, like really big takeaways that you had from this as, as a writer? Yeah, um, I think one of the things I think sometimes if I'm reading a book as a writer, it's I mean, it's obviously to take it apart. That's what's interesting. But it's also sometimes to just like reassure myself of different things. Um, so like, it's a good reminder that we as writers grow like stories don't have to be perfect. Um, Neil Gaiman, like a lot of the the sort of whimsy, the kind of tricksy riddles, um, those sorts of things, they reappear again and again in his other books, the examinations of dreams, um, characters who are kind of like very lost in the beginning and have to find themselves throughout the story. That's something that he explores again and again and again. So like, you know, your first book isn't your only chance to explore an idea that you care about. Don't put so much pressure on yourself. Have a little bit of fun with it. I think also this was actually, I think, his second book that he wrote on his own. Um, and he wrote his first ever novel with Terry Pratchett. And he often talks about how much he cares about Terry Pratchett. And reading the book again, I see how much of there, there's some kind of Pratchett-esque influence there. With like a lot of the comedy, there are kind of like these little um, comedic moments where like... Uh, uh, like with the hairy man or the hairy man's like what does she look like hair eyes usual complimented bits like it like that sort of humor <laughs> is very Pratchett-esque and there are multiple times where he does that and so I think it's also a really good reminder that you can 
you know, you can take these things that inspire you for gaming. It is fairy tales and folk tales and myths. He really loves those. But also you can you can steal from the authors that you love in a way, like respectfully, you know, and um, I think it's also a really good reminder um, that when you first start writing, you might find that you write like other people that you love. And in fact, that's, that's something that Gaiman has said before. He said that we write like other authors before we write like ourselves. So in the beginning, again, give yourself a little bit of grace and just write write the things that you're really interested in and you really love. And it might sound a little bit like these other authors that you love and read. And that's okay and can even be a good thing because, you know, your book is a work in progress. Guess what? So are you. So that's why the book's changed. And oh my <laughs> God, I just connected it back to that title. The dots all around. Yes. Making connections. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I think just really like give yourself grace, write what you love inspiration from all around you yeah yeah I think that's that's a great lesson I remember when you shared that quote with me and I was like it sounds so obvious like of course you know there's the point where you're like I must write a book what do books sound like <laughs> sounds like all these other people um yeah. and then like you know we talk about like finding your voice and 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 all of that but I feel like it definitely connected with there's been a journey I feel like I've been on for the past couple years of realizing like Wait, I can just, I can just put the things in here that I think are fun. Mm -hmm. I can just, oh, it's so fun and it's weird because it's, it's like, well, yeah, you're writing your book. Why wouldn't you put the stuff in it that you like? But some, there is, there's like a hurdle to jump over where you're like, no, a book has to look like this other book that I liked and enjoyed, this other writer who I think is incredible. And there definitely is like a journey to be like, nope, I, I need to let, those instincts also sit down and say, okay, what do I, what do I want to put on this page? And yeah, sometimes it is, it's totally channeling other writers and other concepts and other ideas. And that's cool. But like, don't feel like you can't put you in it. Mm -hmm. That that's like such a valuable journey that was just, I feel like very encapsulated with that, that quote. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also something that for me, it's something that I have to be reminded of constantly um, because the other thing is I'll read a book that I really love and I'll be like, oh my God, how did they do that? I'm never going to be able to create something like that. How, you know, and it's like, well, you don't have to create something like that. Like you can take some of the stuff you really like and that you want to write about and you can leave the rest. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and also like you can explore different styles of writing. You can treat, you know, Gaiman started writing this as like a, I want to write an old school fairy tale and but his other books even though they have similar concepts are not written in that same way um even if they still have his voice so like you know don't don't feel like you, you can treat writing as kind of a fun experiment sometimes too um which is really great i like that writing should be an experiment yeah do we want to close out with sharing a favorite line or two yes um, yeah, do you want to start? Do you have some? Sure. My favorite bit, I think, in the whole thing, the passage that made me laugh out loud and then have to, like, explain to my dad what I was reading <laughs> was um, just, like, a description of a glade uh, in, in the land of fairy that goes, uh, a field mouse found a fallen hazelnut and began to bite into the hard shell of the nut with his sharp, ever-growing front teeth. Not because he was hungry, but because he was a prince under an enchantment who could not regain his outer form until he chewed the nut of wisdom. But his excitement made him careless, and only the shadow that blotted out the moonlight warned him of the descent of a huge gray owl who caught the mouse in her sharp talons and rose again into the night. The owl swallowed the mouse in a couple of gulps, leaving just its tail trailing from her mouth. Something snuffled and grunted as it pushed through the thicket. A badger, thought the owl, herself under a curse, and only able to resume her rightful shape if she consumed a mouse who had eaten the nut of wisdom. <laughs> like, that to me just gets at so much of what we were talking about, about the, like, the fairy tale magic being like, the magic is everywhere, it's not threatening the world, 
but also yes there's layers of curses and enchantments <laughs> and all sorts of nonsense here yeah it just delights me it also kind of feels like he's pointing he's poking a little bit fun at the fairy tale like he's kind of it's almost like a parody um yes which is just so much fun and it's a total aside like you never see any of these creatures again they're not None particularly of this is relevant no but it's so fun um yeah, so not everything you write has to be like this super relevant thing to the main plot. It can also just be kind of these fun asides. Um, so I think there are like I had like four pages of quotes that I was like I want to talk about the, but I like I like them, <laughs> and also I like you know. So there's one where like, uh, it's at the beginning, and Tristan, um, or Tristan is kind of you're kind of introduced to them to him as a daydreamer um and so it says most days tristran was content but there were times when the wind blew from beyond the wall bringing with it the smell of mint and thyme and red currants and at those times there were strange colors seen in the flames of the fireplace of the village i love it so much like it says like and when these moods came upon him he would slip out of the house and lie upon the grass and stare up at the stars like come on this has everything i want it has whimsy it has a little bit of magic in the mundane things are not as they seem like it has everything <laughs> this has everything exactly and so i just really like i think for me reading it when an author writes something like this in my like in my heart i'm like oh this is gonna be good like this is it yeah i love it yeah so is there anything else we want to cover or should we end here yeah i think that's everything um of course if you are listening to this i would love to hear what you think Thanks for wandering with us today here on Working Title. Later this month, we'll be doing another flashback episode talking about Dana's pick, Ella Enchanted, by Gail Carson Levine. If you want to read or reread along with us, you can find us on Twitter at WorkTitlePod. That's at WorkTitlePod. And we'll have that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us. Bye!